everyone. Um, my name's Elise, and our second Bible reading is from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Evening, everybody. Good to be with you here tonight, even though it was a last-minute switch. I'm a sub brought in from the bench tonight. had an injury on the field. And I'm going to ask God to help me and to help all of us. Um, Let's pray. Father, thank you that um, you speak to us through your word. uh, And we know, Father, that anyone who stands up and explains your word is just a simple instrument and servant. And your spirit is the one who writes your word in our hearts. So we pray, Father, that um, whatever the message is that you want us to hear from you tonight, um, that you would help us to hear it and to respond uh, in a way that pleases you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you go reading the signs of what's to come? How do you go reading the signs of what the future might hold? Uh, People love trying to read the signs of the future. Some people do it by reading their horoscope every day or every week. I hope you know that that's a complete load of rubbish. Other people do it by maybe reading their palm. You know the lines on their palm? Let me do you a quick palm reading of my palm. It's wrinkly. There it is. There's my, there's my reading. But other people read the signs in different ways. So you can read the signs of the housing market to try and work out what's going to happen. In a year from now, is it going to have kept going that way or is it going to recover? What are the signs saying about the housing market? Uh, or what about weather around the globe? Uh, what are the signs saying about where the temperature of the, the globe is headed? Scientists will say one thing, Donald Trump will say another. And uh, speaking of Donald Trump, other people read the signs of world politics by following his tweets. What do they tell us about what's happening? How do you think you go reading the signs? And when you look at all the signs of where the world's headed and where the future's headed, how do you think it's going to be? How does it make you feel? Do you feel optimistic? Do you think the signs are good or are they bad? I think 
the signs are looking very, very good. That might surprise you, but that's because the most important signs for the future are not what's happening with world temperatures. It's not Donald Trump's latest tweet. The most important signs were done by one 2,000 years ago, and they point to a very, very good future for everyone who's connected to him. So, uh, as Vino said, today we're getting back into John's Gospel, jumping back into chapter 2. Uh, at the end of chapter 1, we saw how Jesus' first few followers came to be interested in him and follow him. And it was mainly because this guy called John the Baptist said, hey, there's Jesus, go follow him. But really, at this stage, they have no idea about who Jesus is. And so the rest of John's Gospel is the story of how many of these followers came to understand who Jesus really is and why he came. And today's passage shows us one of the key things that Jesus used to show them who he is, and that is the signs that he did, the signs that he did. Now, there is an outline inside your info sheets. Not surprisingly, it's pretty much useless for the talk I'm going to give because that was Gus's outline. Uh, and this is my talk, not Gus's talk. So I'm going to flick it up very quickly on the screen. It's pretty simple, isn't it? That's my outline. We're going to see Jesus the guest. We're going to see Jesus the son. We're going to see Jesus the host. And finally, a sign of glory. So we're going to start in this passage by seeing Jesus the guest. We begin with Jesus as a guest at a week-long party. Have a look at verses 1 and 2. We're in John chapter 2. It says, On the third day, now that's, that's probably talking about the third day after Jesus went back up to his home region of Galilee. Chapter 1, the action was down south of Israel, around not far from Jerusalem. And then we're told that Jesus went back to his home area in the north. So, on the third day... A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, I have to admit, we Anglos, we don't really do... Like, we're only just starting to learn how to do, like, really big wedding celebrations, wedding ceremonies and banquets and stuff. Rebecca, my wife, and I, we had a, a very traditional Anglo wedding reception... Some of you would probably use the word boring, right? But that would be offensive and judgmental. But yeah, it was pretty boring. So uh, we had a lunchtime reception because like who wants to hang around all day, right? Uh, and four o'clock, man, we were out of there. That's it, all over, done and dusted. That's perfect, right? Then we went and lived in Chile and the South, African, sorry, the South Americans started to re-educate us about what a real wedding celebration is like. So, uh, in Chile, basically, if the bride and groom leave before 6 a.m., it's a bit of a fizzer, okay? It's a bit of a dud. They just want to dance all night, and everyone else is with them. Well, the Jews in Jesus' day, they really knew how to celebrate a wedding. Because uh, the wedding banquet in Jesus' time would go for seven days straight. A whole week fully catered by the groom. Think about that. That's going to get you out there finding a job, isn't it, guys? 
Well, the Jews, they really knew how to celebrate a wedding. And you know one of the good things about this passage? The first thing we find out is that Jesus has no problem in going to a seven-day party. He's got no problem with that. And celebrating, Jesus, Jesus is, is not your spoil sport party pooper. In fact, we're going to see how Jesus makes the party even better. Okay, but before we get there, in verse 3, disaster strikes this wedding because the, they run out of wine. Okay, now in that culture, for the bridegroom, for the groom to run out of supplies, this was a huge shame issue. It would bring shame on him and his family, and in fact, his new wife's family could actually sue him because he ran out of stuff. Right, so this is a big issue. And this leads into this really strange little exchange between Jesus and his mother, Mary. So in verse 3, Mary, Jesus' mother, she knows what's happened. There's no more wine, and she tells Jesus the problem. She says to him, they have no more wine. Now, very clearly, she's not just telling him that. She's expecting him to do something about it, to help in some way. I'm actually, it's very hard to know exactly what she was expecting Jesus to do about it. Okay, I very much doubt that she's, ex- she's asking Jesus to do a miracle. Okay, because John actually tells us this was the first thing, this, the first miracle or sign that Jesus did. So it's not like Jesus used to, you know, turn the water into wine before dinner every night. Uh, I expect Mary is actually just asking him to go out and buy some more wine or something. But whatever she's expecting, Jesus' answer is really weird. It's quite mysterious. Okay, have a look at verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. What on earth does that mean? My hour has not yet come. Well, we're not supposed to understand that. Okay, and I suspect Mary really didn't have a clue what he was saying either because this is the first time Jesus just drops in that phrase my hour and he's going to keep dropping it in he mentions my hour that's coming seven times in John the first John's gospel without ever explaining so this is like the big secret that Jesus is slowly giving hints about he knows there's this big moment this huge moment that's coming up for him But we're not going to find out what that is until much later on, until the big reveal in the last few chapters of John's Gospel. A bit like my all-time favorite movie reveals. You know those movies which have a big reveal at the end? My all-time favorite one is the movie The Usual Suspects. For any of you who've seen The Usual Suspects, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, Partway through the movie, you start hearing about this terrifying Turkish crime lord called Kaiser Suze, right? And it's just more and more terrifying. And in fact, even when you hear the name Kaiser Suze, it's just like strikes terror into your heart, but you've got no idea who he is. And finally, in the last scene of the movie, you find out the truth about Kaiser Suze. Now, you know how those people who spoil those movie surprises. You hate those people who spoil movie surprises, right? Yeah, well, I'm going to do that. Not with the usual suspects, but I'm going to do that with John's gospel and with the hour, Jesus' hour in John's gospel. 
What we find out at the end is that Jesus' hour, this huge moment that's coming for him, is the moment set by God his Father for him to suffer and die and then rise and return to his Father again. And that hour, that moment, would also be the moment when Jesus' true glory and his true identity is revealed to the whole world, publicly, to everyone. So much later in John chapter 12, verse 23, just a few days before his death, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, so right from the start of Jesus' public ministry, three years earlier, he knew that God had set the path for him. He knew that that God had sent him to fulfill everything that God had promised and talked about in the Old Testament. And he knew that God was the one who would decide the moment when all of that would be revealed to the world and where he would be fully glorified and revealed. So, how does that help us with verse 4? When Jesus says to his mother, what are you, why are you including me? My hour's not yet come. Well, basically, Jesus is going to help with this wine problem. Okay, we see that. He's going to help with this wine shortage, but he's going to do so in a way that fits with God's program that God has set, not Mary's wishes. Okay, so he's not going to bring forward the moment that God has set for his glory to be revealed fully and publicly to everybody. So, in the second half of the passage, when he turns the water into wine, John tells us that he does reveal the first little glimpse of his glory, but he only does it to a few people. It's actually only his immediate followers and a few servants who get to see. See, what Jesus is saying to his mother Mary is this. I can no longer follow your orders. I can no longer be under your authority, even though you're my mother, because my heavenly Father has set out the path for me and I can only obey him from now on. For any of you who come from a Roman Catholic background or if you know a lot of Roman Catholic people, you might know that this passage, those verses we've just looked at, are are very important for the Roman Catholic idea that we can pray to Mary or that we should pray to Mary. And for many Roman Catholics, they prefer praying to Mary. About 15 years ago, a Filipino lady explained to me that these verses are the biblical proof for why we should pray to Mary. Okay? If you don't know, here's how the logic goes. Okay? You can pray to Jesus. That's okay. But he might not really be interested in what you're asking. He might not really want to answer you. But in this passage, we can see that Mary can get Jesus to do what she wants because she's his mother. So Jesus didn't really want to turn the water into wine, but he did it because she insisted. And so if you pray to Mary, your prayer is more likely to be answered because she will ask Jesus. And even if he doesn't really want to, because she's his mother, he will do it. There are all kinds of things that are wrong and really sad about that whole way of thinking. Okay, do you you get what's going on? So 
people who have this understanding, this, this idea, they don't realize that we can come to Jesus and he always listens. If you trust in Jesus, he always listens and always answers everything you ask. In fact, listen to what Jesus himself said later on in John, chapter 14, verse 13. He said to his disciples, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in my name, not in Mary's name, in my name. See, it's just so tragic that so many people have this idea that, well, Jesus might not really be very interested in in little unimportant you. And it's even more tragic that they don't understand that the whole reason Jesus died was to bring you to his Father so that the God of the universe could be your Father and so that you could come directly to the throne of God and ask him and call him your dad and you can always know that God the Father listens to you with love and answers every time. And in fact, this idea that Mary can twist Jesus' arm to kind of get him to do what he doesn't want to do, that's actually the opposite of what this passage says. Okay, so when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he's actually drawing a line in the sand. Okay, he's setting a new boundary in his relationship with his mother. Because up to this point, Jesus has basically related to Mary like any good, obedient Jewish boy would relate to his mother. But now he must only live as the son of his heavenly father, not the son of his earthly mother. And he must only follow God's program. A few chapters later in John 5, verse 30, Jesus, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. But you know, there is one thing we should learn from Mary here in this passage. Do you know there is one command from Mary in the whole Bible, and it's not a command to Jesus. Okay, after this rebuke from Jesus, Mary doesn't tell him what to do. She tells the servants what to do. Did you see that in verse 5? She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Okay, the thing that we learn from Mary, the one command in the Bible is not to pray to her. It's to listen to Jesus and do whatever he says. Okay, and do you know one thing Jesus tells you and me? When his disciples asked him how to pray, he said, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Jesus commands us to direct our prayers to God our Father. God is your Father if you trust in Jesus. So, listen to Mary, do what Jesus tells you, and especially approach God your Father when you pray. Okay, so we've seen Jesus as guest, Jesus as son, and especially the son of his heavenly Father. Mary's got to take second place now. And finally, in verses 6 to 10, we see Jesus as the secret host of this wedding feast. He's the one who provides wine for this party, not just any wine, but the best wine. So uh, in verse 6, we're told that there were six stone jars that would be used for uh, ritual 
ceremonial uh, washing, purification rituals. Now, these are very big jars. These are not jars that you have on your kitchen table that you pour a glass of water out of. These were probably jars that they used to fill a ceremonial bath. It's that kind of washing, okay? So each of these jars would hold about 10 buckets of water. So in total here, there's about 60 buckets of water that they fill uh, these jars with. And then Jesus tells some servants to draw out some water and to take it to the MC of the wedding, the, the master of the banquet, the director. And at some point, we don't actually know when, it might, might have been as they were carrying the water that they'd drawn out to the MC, at some point, it turns into wine. And not just any wine, but Penfold's Grange wine. That's what the MC says, the best wine. There's other stuff we don't know. Uh, we don't know whether Jesus turned all of the 60 buckets worth of water into wine or did he just turn it into wine as it, it was needed? Uh, who knows? But whatever it was, this is an extravagant miracle, isn't it? This is Jesus supplying abundantly the best wine for the whole banquet for the rest of it, uh, the rest of the week. Uh, this, is, this is a generous, extravagant provision. And in case you're wondering, and in case you're troubled, some people do get troubled a little bit by verse 10, where the wedding director, the MC, says everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine. After all, the guests have had too much to drink. Uh, in case you're wondering, it is very doubtful that the other wedding guests at this point are rolling around on the floor drunk. Okay, Drunkenness in Jesus' day and in the Old Testament was definitely not acceptable. Uh, and the Jews, even though they drank wine as their normal drink, they would always water it down a lot so that they didn't get drunk. So even though Jesus brings the pure stuff, it was watered down so that people could drink it um, sensibly and well. So that the point here is not how much the people have drunk already and whether some of them are drunk. The point here is that Jesus takes what's good and he turns it into the absolute best. Okay? See, the normal progression in a week-long wedding banquet was for the wine to get slowly, slowly cheaper uh, as the week went on. That's pretty obvious, right, when you're paying for it all. But not with Jesus. With Jesus, good doesn't become dodgy. Good becomes the very best there is. But is that all just about wine? Well, no, it's not. It never is with Jesus, is it? It's never about the boring normal thing. And in verse 11, John tells us that what Jesus did here was not just about helping out a guy who had a problem. This was a sign of something much bigger. It was a sign of glory. So have a look at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is another theme that we're going to keep hearing about in the rest of John's Gospel, the theme of signs. Because John doesn't call these amazing things Jesus does. He never calls them miracles, ever. He calls them signs. And the reason is that, that when Jesus did these powerful things, he didn't do them just to amaze people. They're meant to point us like a sign to the truth about who Jesus is, 
And they're, they're meant to help us move from doubt to faith. Okay, from unbelief to believing and trusting in Jesus. That's what John tells us at the very end of the gospel, chapter 20, well, nearly the end. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. These are maybe the key verses of the whole gospel of John. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, Jesus didn't just pull out amazing party tricks. He gave clear and powerful signs pointing to who he is so that we would believe and live. Okay, so that we would believe and live. In fact, you'll see that right down the very bottom of the sheet in the info sheet. You'll see that's what we've put as the theme of the whole Gospel of John. Believe and live. That's what these signs are about. Now, I don't know if you remember, but last year in Acts, when we were looking at Acts chapter 3 and 4, we actually saw something very similar, where there was a lame man who was healed by Jesus, and the Apostle Peter describes it as a sign. Again, he doesn't call it a miracle. And I really want to, I really want to emphasize this. I want us to understand what the difference is, why, why he's calling it a sign, what's a sign about. So uh, I've got a little, little thing here to help me. I want to know, what's, what's the purpose of a sign? Well, a sign is to point you to something, right? So tell me, here's a sensible sign. What, what's the purpose of this sign? What's it for? To tell you where the organ is, right? You might not know that there's an organ, but it's just over there. The purpose of this sign, it's, no, 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 not this organ, not inside, no, no, no. It's an organ with keys and things like that. This sign, oh, who didn't know there was an organ? Well, there you go. Now you know because there's a sign. It tells you where the organ is. This is a sensible sign, okay? Here is, <laughs> excuse me, here is a stupid sign, okay? What's the purpose of this sign? to tell you where this sign is, right? That's, this sign is going, look at me, look at me, all right? This is a stupid sign. If we get obsessed about the miracles that Jesus does and focus on the miracles, it's a bit like that sign, okay? And sometimes people can see and read about the miracles Jesus did and they go, wow, yeah, I like that one, Jesus. Can we have another one like that? Or maybe a different one like this and get focused on the miracles and well, that's, that's the look at me, look at me. That's not what Jesus' miracles were about. They were not to point to themselves. They were to point us to the truth, maybe that way, the truth about who Jesus is. These acts of Jesus point us to the truth about who he is and why he came so that we will believe and live. They help us to move from unbelief to trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, later on in John's gospel, uh, we're going to see that actually we shouldn't need to see those signs ourselves to believe anyway. And Jesus is going to warn us later on that, that being focused, becoming too obsessed and focused on the miracle itself, what Jesus does, that's actually a sign of shallow faith that might not last. But... The miracles that Jesus did, 
are signs so that we might believe in him and live. Okay, so what about this miracle of water turned to wine? What was it a sign of? What's it pointing to? Well, in verse 11 that we just read, John said, this was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Okay, now that's that's a very brief little explanation of the sign, isn't it? Later on when we get more signs in John's gospel, Jesus is going to give us much longer explanations. But I think in this one really short one, there are two parts to what we're meant to understand. The first is that this sign points us to the mind-blowing reality of who Jesus really is. Okay, That he is not just a man, but the glorious, eternal, holy God become flesh. We saw that uh, back at the start of John's Gospel, didn't we, on Christmas Eve. In fact, from John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, where was the first time that John and these first followers first saw that glory in this sign that Jesus did of turning the water into wine. But the second part has to do with wine. The second part has to do with wine. Okay, see, in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, wine was a symbol of, of joy and feasting and celebration and pleasure and being together. Okay, and, and the Old Testament prophets all looked forward to a time in the future when God would save his people from their sin and from their sadness and he would pour out all his blessing on them. And part of that was pouring out abundant new wine on his people. And so his eternal kingdom that his prophets were looking forward to was going to be a kingdom of feasting and joy with abundant wine to satisfy his people. Okay, so just a couple of examples from the prophets. Amos 9, 13 and 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. And then Joel says in Joel 3 verse 18, In that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. I hope they don't run into each other and mix. But anyway, all the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and water the valley of Acacias. So the prophets were were looking forward to this age that would come when God would pour out his spirit and his blessings And they were looking forward to this age which would be like a banquet, a never-ending feast with abundant new wine. When Jesus did this sign, he was pointing to the truth that he is the one who will bring all of that. He has come to bring the new kind of joy and celebration in God's kingdom. Jesus is saying, I am the host of the party that will never end. I'm the host of the party that will never end. And did this sign bring about the right response? Remember what we saw at the end? This is so that to help people believe and find life. Well, at the end of verse 11, John says, his disciples 
believed in him. It was a sign of his glory and they believed. That's, that's good, isn't it? That's good, though we just have to wait a bit, actually, because that belief will get challenged later on. Okay, at the moment, they really don't know very much at all. They know Jesus is this great and glorious. What Jesus is going to tell them later is that he's not going to reveal his full glory by marching to Rome on a war horse with an army behind him to smash the Romans, but instead he's going to reveal his full glory by being lifted up by the Romans on a cross to bleed and die. And for some of his disciples, that's going to be too much. That's going to be too much for them to cope with. But all of that's down the track. So uh, for us today, what's the point of what we've seen from John 2 for you and me? Here's the point. Jesus did this sign so that you and I would believe two things. Okay, so that you and I would believe two things. First of all, that Jesus is worth more than anything else in the whole world. He's the glorious one. He is worth all your devotion and worship and love and trust and obedience. He is worth giving your life to because he is the Lord of glory. And secondly, Jesus did this sign so that you and I will believe that what he gives you is better than anything else in the world. It's better than all the other alternatives that you're going to be tempted by to think that they will give you happiness and satisfaction. Jesus is saying that he is the only one who will bring you true satisfaction and laughter and joy and pleasure because he is going to be the host of the party that will never end. So please don't risk missing out on what Jesus gives you by turning away from him as your king. And and please, please, don't give in to the lie of the devil that says, well, like Jesus is okay for most stuff, but you know, in this one area of your life, you're going to have to go outside Jesus to find happiness. In, in this one area of your life, you, you might just have to go elsewhere to something you know Jesus really is not happy about, but you might need to go there for satisfaction and happiness. That is a lie. All of the devil's fake satisfactions will end up chewing you up and spitting you out. They will disappoint and hurt and betray you in the end. Jesus is worth everything and you will never miss out by giving your whole life to him. Okay, so once again, listen to his mum do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that when your glorious son came to earth, he didn't just give us wise sayings and teachings, but he actually showed people his true glory to help us because we do struggle to believe, Father, and we do all struggle sometimes with doubts about Jesus. We pray that tonight and next week and as we keep going through John, you would use the words that we read and what we hear about Jesus and these signs so that our belief in Jesus might be strong and true and indestructible and most of all, so that we would never be tempted to go somewhere else for satisfaction and happiness. 
You've told us, Father, that Jesus is the host of the heavenly banquet where all our longings will be satisfied completely. Please help us to believe and trust and obey. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.